Good evening, everyone. It is Thursday, June 30th, 2022. Um, my name is Mark Real, your host of State of the Family Courts. And I am here with, I believe this is your third time on the show, Sean. Is that correct? I think so. You know, I, I, I just keep coming back because I like you so much. <laughs> I think we have the longest episode in the history of State of the Family Courts as well, too. But we have Washington attorney Sean Kohlmeyer, um on again. And uh, tonight we're going to do be a little bit different. Things are going to look a little bit different because um, in the past 14 days, there have been two Supreme Court decisions that um, could impact could end up having a very, very large impact on fathers and their rights. Um, so given given the fact before the show, Sean and I were talking about, we're going to end up down some wormhole tonight. Um, I couldn't think of a better person to get on here to just talk <laughs> about what could be the impacts of these decisions. Okay, so, cool. We'll, we'll start out here. And um, Sean and I may be two of the only people on the planet who have actually went wire to wire with the 213 page Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade um, and abortion. So there's a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of uh, protesting um, against things that 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 decision actually doesn't do. Um, so the first thing I always tell people is that decision didn't ban abortion. Um, that decision, um, gave the rights back to the States. Um, and the second decision or second thing we'll talk about tonight is, um, the decision that actually came out less than 24 hours prior to that, which was in regards to guns and the laws in the state of California and the state of New York around concealed carry. Um, and a lot of people, they look at that and they say they use different logic to come to those two decisions. And uh, Sean and I, I think we, we fall on different ends or different parts of the political spectrum. So I think that could be uh, some good discussion as well. So um, I'll, I'll start out. To, I'll, I'll give this one to you, Sean, to start out. So we have the Dobbs decision. Um, right. And you went all 213 pages just like I did. Um, you said you did it for me. So um, I, I, I feel I, I'm very honored for you to have done that. Um, there are so many things I do for you, Mark. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So, um, in, in reading the Dobbs decision, what is what was your biggest takeaway in regards for to what the Supreme Court actually did? Okay, so before I get there, I'm going to start with this. Okay, I think this is one of the few times in which it's 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 uh, um, helpful to sort of state uh, your bias on um, where you're coming at it this from. So. Uh, I am. I'm a Democrat. I'm a liberal with a with a libertarian streak. Um, uh, you know, as an attorney, I can read a conservative opinion. I can read a conservative. Um, I can read a conservative opinion, and I can understand their reasoning, but I don't necessarily agree with it. All right. Um, I don't agree with the Dobbs decision, but um, but you know, I understand the legal reasoning in it. And I'll um, jump in here too. Is I'm a registered independent that traditionally votes almost exclusively conservative. Born and raised in a red state. Obviously, I live in a very blue state now. Um, but I am a, I would say, a moderate conservative. Yeah, um, and, would be where I fall. So, and, Sean and, and I'm I, a, and I'm a moderate liberal. Yeah. So we're we're on opposite ends. Not extreme by any means, but you're gonna get both perspectives um, here 
today. So I'll, I'll turn it back over to you. So we got our political leanings. That's out there. Um, what did you take away from Dobbs? So what I really took away from Dobbs was just um, a couple of a couple of things. Number number one is is that, and this is what I've been sharing with a lot of my clients recently that are that are talking about this. And, and I say to them, um, what a lot of Americans forget is that this is not a country that um, inherited a constitutional, not a constitutional monarchy. That's not what we are. We aren't. We aren't even a country that um, overthrew a king and then created elections. That's France. That's a lot of other, you know, countries that used to be monarchies that are now democracies. Um, in those countries, they had a central government and that the regional governments were subordinate to the central governmental authority. That is not what the United States is. The United States is effectively not one country. It's 50 countries that are held together loosely in a coalition in order to accomplish certain things collectively together. And again, some things that Americans forget is that this is the second or maybe third American American Republic. The, the first American Republic, the, 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 you know, the American um, Confederacy failed. That government the, under the Articles of Confederate, uh, under the Articles of Confederation failed because it simply didn't work very well. So the current constitution that we have was written in 1787, 1789, and you know it was specifically to address the problems that that happened because the the first American Confederacy failed. We're not talking about the Confederate, the Southern Confederacy that we fought a civil war with. We're talking about the very first one, um, and so for instance, the Commerce Clause of the of the Federal Constitution, which 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 says that Congress can pass a law and regulate interstate commerce. That The reason that exists is so that New York and New Jersey don't need to go to war with each other over trade. That's why it's there. So again, it's the country, the founders envisioned this country as 50, you know, or however many, you know, states you would ultimately have, you know, independent states that gave limited powers to the federal government so that they could accomplish certain things together that that they couldn't do independently. So that's sort of the framework that everyone sort of needs to wrap their head around. And in the last 50 to you know, 75 years or so, um, you know, there's been, regardless of whether you're liberal or, 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 or conservative, there has been, you know, a growth in the federal government. There's been a growth in an understanding of what the federal constitution is supposed to do and what it protects. The federal constitution is supposed to set a, a minimal standard of rights that every state, you know, constitution must meet. That that happens through the incorporation clause of the Fourteenth Amendment, right? But the the individual state constitutions are supposed to be granting the majority of the rights and the federal constitution is limited. And let me give you a specific example. Where I sit right now in Seattle, two constitutions really apply to me, the federal constitution and the Washington's constitution. The Washington state constitution grants me far more privacy rights, far more, far more protections than the federal constitution does. So I think that when you look at what Dobbs is saying and you, when you read Dobbs, and again, I don't agree with Dobbs. I think that you're right to make 
healthcare decisions and you know with the privacy of your own doctor is a privacy right that should be viewed as being inherent to basic liberty interests protected by the federal constitution but when you read dobbs and what they're saying in dobbs is really what they're doing is they're shifting this issue back to the states you know there's there's two quotes that i kind of want to read from it to talk about this they said in the majority opinion they said the nation's historical understanding of ordered liberty does not prevent the people's elected representatives from deciding how abortion should be regulated. So what they're really trying to do is they're trying to say that, that the Supreme Court should not be involved in this difficult moral and ethical question, that that decision about how that is implemented needs to be happening by the people's elected representatives, and that's a state legislature. Yeah, I think that's the biggest takeaway that gets lost is that this didn't ban anything. This didn't change anything. The Dobbs decision was purely a shift from the federal government making a decision to them saying, no, the federal government never had that ability and we're going to give it back to the states. Right. Here's a quote from them. It said, abortion presents a profound moral question. The Constitution does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. Roe and Casey abrogated that authority. The court overrules those decisions and returns that authority to the people and their elected representatives. So that's what they're doing. They're saying the court does not belong in this difficult moral ethical question that belongs with the elected representatives of the people in their states. Or, or... With Congress, yeah, right. I, I mean, I think, I Congress. Think Go ahead. Yeah, I, I. And here, here's the thing: I think you're going to see, and you've seen some governors, um, you've seen some states um, convene to uh, to address some of this. Is that at the end of the day, it's something like seventy eight to eighty five percent of the general public um, had no issue with abortion being legal. Um, the, the dilemma a lot of times falls in where's the line, which is what the court's alluding to and saying this is a very difficult moral and ethical dilemma that, um, in theory, your state representatives, your more closely held representatives are in a better position to make that decision than right. a state senator um, a or the Supreme Court, which is obviously – those are not elected officials. Those are those are appointees of the president. So right. that that's I, he, in in my opinion is I I I agree and I disagree with Dobbs. I agree with Dobbs in the sense that we should be deferring as much power to the state level as possible, despite the fact I don't necessarily agree with my own state government, but. Um, there was clearly decided and well-held law that all the justices who signed this majority opinion stated in their confirmation hearings that they understood this to be well-established law. Now, how can we go about, I mean, there's well-established law that was, I think it's very hard to say was clearly erroneous that now we've overturned, which is going to create issues moving forward with, I think, several issues. And, and you heard in a, in a concurring opinion, um, several other cases 
that mm-hmm. were mentioned that in theory could be on the table that should mm-hmm. be addressed under the precedent that was set by this one. So my biggest issue is we had clearly established law that um, I don't think they met their burden of this is clearly erroneous to go back and change 50 years of precedent. I, I agree. And if I, I don't remember which one of those justices in their confirmation hearing talked about this, but one of them said that they, that they, that their opinion was the certain law was super precedent and that Roe was, was part of that, that it was, I believe it was, uh, I, I believe it was, uh, Coney Barrett was the, was, was stated that it was super precedent. So, but yeah, I think, uh, that, that, that's the most troubling piece to me Yeah, and the, the irony of it, and this is what I've been telling people, the irony of it, um, really the, the, what I would view as the starting point for what we now have is activist just judges or justices on the Supreme court was the kind of starting point was Ruth Bader Ginsburg for the truly outspoken activists for many liberal causes justice and her death, unfortunately led to this super majority on the court that's allowing for these things to occur. Um, and, and so that, that's the real, that's, that, that's kind of the irony in all of this was this very staunchly that even most Republicans don't agree with decision. Um, really the roots of it go back to mm-hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, basically making it okay for justices to be activists. Um, they shouldn't be players on the field. The purpose of them is not to be players on the field is to be umpires calling balls and strikes. And we've got now where we've politicized, where obviously justices step down when their party is in control so they can ensure that that seat stays with their party. Um, And then you see, um, obviously, that there's most recently the controversy around uh, Neil Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett, where we come, we the situations were similar, not the same. And we did different things because the court had become politicized. Well, the court is the court has in in our lifetime has become more politicized than it probably has since FDR and the court packing scandal. Um, so, and and it and maybe even worse, maybe maybe far worse. I mean, you start looking at some of the decisions that the court has made, you know, related to like political decisions, right? Like you know, no matter whether you're a conservative or a Republican, I mean, whether you're a conservative or a Democrat, you know, uh, there are there are aspects of what the court did in, in Bush versus Gore, which are deeply troubling. Um, you know, the the failure of the court to recognize the problem for, for our democracy with gerrymandering, um, you know, there's, in many respects, the court has become far more politicized than I think it's ever been before. Yeah. Well, and it, it goes back to, we don't have individuals calling balls and strikes um, re- realistically on just about every issue. There is, we have our, our chief justice who I would say is the only one who in recent memory has, has kind of bucked the trend of, of being politicized. He was, he was put on the bench by a Republican and there have been a handful of decisions in which he has sided with the Democrats um, upholding precedent. 
Um, but other than that, I mean, up, I mean, right now we can pretty much say we know where three of the justices are going to vote on the liberal side of things. We know where five of the justices are going to vote on the conservative side of things. And so even Chief Justice Roberts can't necessarily balance the courts. Yeah, it's also interesting that Roberts came out and said that he, you know, he didn't, you know, he didn't support this. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you know, you there's a there's something that came up here in, in the in the context of the conversation that we have a lot on the on as it relates to shared parenting and it relates to father's rights. Um, there's there's another way we can examine what happened with Roe and also for instance, um, say the Johnny Depp case, right? Where where Depp has won his defamation case against um, Amber Heard is we might really be looking at sort of the apex of the pendulum swing on on a particular vision of a social movement, for lack of a better term, that you could say is you know militant feminist or whatever. Even though I'm a feminist because I support you know women's full rights and equality in society, but there's a there's a particular vision of the way that of the ways that has been implemented by some people that you might be looking at that and saying this is really is the apex of that pendulum swing. It's the end of Me Too. It's the end of this idea that that you believe all women, regardless of of you know what's being said, you know that maybe you can understand it inside of that context too. And I, I'm curious to see what the being, I mean, both of us, both of us being moderates on different sides of, of the, the issue, my, my, my initial thought is that I am curious and somewhat concerned to see what that backswing is going to be in the next three to four years, because uh, you, you look at the judiciary as obviously it's a six, three Republican majority, which we shouldn't even look at it that way. Um, but that's just the facts of the way things are going right now. Or you could argue that it's a five, three with our chief justice doing his job. It's just swayed so far one way he cannot. Um, but what happens in a couple years if, uh, the Republicans, which they've won some seats in special elections that they haven't won in hundreds of years, what happens if all three branches of the federal government end up that way? And I guess, I guess the ultimate question that ties into this is, does this does this help or hurt um, in terms of the movement we have around equal and shared parenting and and father's rights? And my inclination, my first thing is, yes, you look at the three states that have equal and shared parenting. They're all super majority Republican states. Um, there has not been even a moderate state, a purple state that has come close. All the states that have made runs at it, um, whether it be we obviously have Kentucky Arkansas, most recently West Virginia, we have Texas, we have Oklahoma, we have Tennessee. Um, all those states that have made serious runs at it are red states. So is the pendulum swinging back, although some of the outcomes are concerning right now, is that something that five years from now we view as as the biggest piece of momentum that, I mean, five years from now, do we have 15, 20, 25 states with equal and shared parenting? Well, I think that you're going to have 15, 25 states with equal and shared parenting no matter what, because it's just the demographics at work. 
and you know it's the largest civil rights issue sleeper civil rights issue in our society um but you know i also find it very disturbing that on on the blue side of the spectrum that there isn't more um instant support for equal and shared parenting th that that um you would think that 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 the the blue you know the blue states and you know liberals would really support that idea but unfortunately you find that it's that it's it it's it doesn't actually cut that way far too often it's it's framed as um father's rights advocates are misogynist and you know that it's a cover for abuse and all of this other you know just you know garbage yeah. and that <laughs> you don't have people who who fundamentally believe in equality recognizing that you know equality for men means equality for everyone yeah i think here, here's the thing being here in california and and i won't I, I won't name the group but there's a group that's based out of california here who probably about six months six eight months ago i reached out and their contention is that the family court system is broken around protecting those that have been abused and that is a blanket statement i would agree that there are some issues that occur and there are definitely people who are victims of abuse that end up not getting the protections they need and deserve. So I, I reached out and I said, and their contention is family courts broken, family courts broken. So I reach out and I say, okay, under the guise that we both 100% wholly agree with the statement that the family court system as it exists is broken, why don't we work together? Because I get you're, you're anti-equal and shared parenting. And you're pressing a lot of these laws that actually create problematic or troublesome behaviors because of what you can gain from alleging abuse or um, without even really proving it. So under the guise of we both agree with that statement, let's have a conversation. It can be public. It can be private. And the response was that there's no discussion to be had. Men are abusive. Right. That was the response I got from the other side when all I said was, we both agree on this one core statement. This is essentially our, we'll call it our mission statement for both movements. Let's have a dialogue about yeah. what we do agree on. And they don't want to have yeah. that discussion. They don't. I had a I had a, a coffee meeting with Jennifer Harmon um, several months ago. Um, you know, she's the country's leading researcher on parental alienation. The woman really knows what she's talking about. And probably the most verbally attacked online individual in our entire space because she's a woman studying what she's studying. Right. Right. And um she she related that she basically had the, a very similar experience where where you know uh, the discussion re really was about well everyone agrees that about the behaviors of parental alienation exist everyone agrees that there are people out there that um, 
control access to their to the child um, to the what's called the targeted parent and that they also engage in a campaign of denigration and bad mouthing of the targeted parent so everyone agrees that these things happen and everyone agrees that they have detrimental effects on yeah. the children but they just don't like the term parental alienation so so jennifer was invited uh to participate in a in um a, a conversation about well let's let's talk about what we can agree on and come up with some definition the other side didn't show up because they didn't want that what they want is they want to be able to continue a narrative that says that all men are abusive all women are victims parental alienation is a myth that it doesn't actually happen it's There's a tool of the abuser it's a tool of 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 the abuser to to get custody of their children back when they shouldn't get them i mean you know that's that's the storyline but and and the reason that's the storyline is let's let's talk about that elephant in the room it's because of the money right that's why Bye. right yeah. yeah yeah because it's a 60 to 70 billion dollar a year industry and the people who are making money on the side of trying to fight for equal and shared parenting right you know people like you and me right are are by and large absolutely the minority yeah i i, I always use the the example uh, people are like why doesn't this movement get more traction I'm like, we, we're out here in a, what was a fringe, because of the way it was positioned, it was a fringe extremist belief until realistically 2010, 2012, 2014. And essentially the other side has been around for 50 or 60 years, laying the foundation for positioning. Mm -hmm. And so you have, you have the side on a beer budget that, for all intents and purposes is mm -hmm. for the most part has zero money has zero lo I mean I would say our only professional lobbyist and and you and I both uh, know him I mean our only professional lobbyist is probably Mark Ludwig um, out of St. Louis um, Americans for equal and shared parenting who has the experience who's actually professionally done this for the most part it's a ragtag band of individuals who rally up troops at the state level and the few of them that have the funds to travel try to do it but it's it's so ingrained and there's so much money these dv groups have lobbyists who have desks at the state house um that's something that's very yeah. very challenging and hard to overcome and they've written and they've written laws to to you know get money flowing to them from either the violence against women act or from you know the title nine you know child support matching funds that kick back you know so there's an enormous amount of money that flows either taxpayer dollars or money you know you know from from elsewhere that just flows backwards to support this giant machine that um you know generates money by destroying families by destroying children by engaging in this myth that all men are abusive and all women are victims and that a woman would will never you know falsely accuse domestic violence or any other sort of you know violent act in order to get an advantage in divorce because that's just such a horrible thing to do 
you know, they no one would ever parentally alienate their child because that's a horrible thing to do. They just yeah. engage in this just it's a it's a merry-go-round of magical circular thinking. <laughs> well, you, you 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 mentioned all of this, and that, that's the same argument they use against parental alienation, is that it's this circular argument that's not based in fact. But you mentioned something earlier that I think is a very, very key fact to really all of this in the money aspect. The family, the family law industry, we'll call it, is a, a, they, they say by 2025 is going to be an 80 billion dollar a year enterprise. Jeez. And 75 percent of that money is spent by men who overwhelmingly only about less than 15 percent of men are, are awarded primary or sole custody of their children in court. So you have this enormous amount of, we'll call it wealth, that's transferring to the government, that's transferring to partners through legal fees, uh, child support, spousal support, all these things. And it, so the vast majority of the money is coming from the aggrieved party, which I talked about hamstrings the ability to grow the movement because the most ardent supporters are usually the ones that are the most financially impacted by the issue. Yeah, I mean, my my insane, never-ending um, divorce and custody battle that's now at five and a half or six years plus and, you know, has cost my ex-wife and I in actual money expended out of pocket probably around $500,000 has opportunity costs of about $2 million, um, you know, is, you know, and it's being fueled, of course, by, you know, um, you know, my ex-wife's unbelievably unethical attorney. Um, is she back I, on the case full on? And I know last time no, she, came, she came back onto the case just for um, arbitration. We're back in arbitration to get a case manager um, appointed. So she she came back just for that. And I don't know if she's going to, you know, withdraw again. Beats me. I don't know. Um, you know, and we've got a we've got an appellate reply brief deadline in the middle of next month. So I've got to write a reply brief. So uh, you know, who knows? I don't know. But, you know, the the amount of money that it's cost me, you know, and my ex-wife, you know, 500 grand. I mean, it's cost us basically almost everything. Um, you know, it's just it's it's obscene and insane and unbelievably stupid that my ex-wife, you know, has, you know, spent that money with her attorney when, you know, her attorney went out there and created a giant clusterfuck of our divorce and she's got a massive malpractice claim against her. But my my ex-wife just keeps, you know, pouring more money into her pocket because she's angry and because she's pissed off. And the reason why she's angry and pissed off is because, you know, her corrupt attorney really largely helped fuel that anger and, you know, made her pissed off. And I contrast that with I've got two family law cases now. You know, because now I do family law. I mean, I started out as personal injury. Now I do family law as well. I got two. I got two family law cases right now, where you know I'm looking at this and I'm like, if I were just to pour gas onto this onto this fire, if I were just to just escalate the situation, it wouldn't be very hard to do. You know, these people would polarize instantly, and you know they would spend everything fighting over their kids, and you know for you know corrupt unethical you know attorneys that don't have any moral or you know center that's 
you know, that's a license to print money. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So I'll kind of, I'll pull it back to where we started in this conversation. And, and that was the Dobbs decision. I think we both agree that at least in part it was erroneous because we overturned 50 years of precedent. Um, probably disagree on, I would probably make the argument on my side that Roe was an overstep of the courts to begin with. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it should be overturned now where, um, obviously you stated your side would be that uh, Roe should have just been upheld on the merits. Mine would have been more, it should have been upheld on 50 years of uh, what one of our justices referred to as super precedent. Um, in, in terms of the question that the biggest question that popped in my mind with this decision is now there's many States. Um, we'll, we'll say, I, I don't know the exact number. We'll use 20. There's 20 States where there is presumed to be or essentially an abortion ban um, in those states. And this raises some interesting questions specific to fathers. Mm -hmm. And it's one where in the state of California, a couple of years ago, they added the ability for an unmarried mother to request in family court expenses for the pregnancy. So as soon as you were deemed the father, you could actually be on the hook for expenses that were incurred because of the pregnancy. So now we have a question of when, as this, as the father's rights movement, as equal and shared parenting goes further down the road, and now we mix it with many states not allowing abortion. When does a father's rights? When does a father's right to step in and have a definite opinion that carries weight actually begin? Um, so that I think that's going to be that's going to be an interesting issue that comes out of this is if you're forcing the women to have the children for whatever reason. Like I said, there this is a very thorny, interesting discussion around abortion and then when and how. When now is this going to neg do you, do you think this could potentially negatively impact men? Do you see it as a positive development? Well, I don't see, you know, I don't see this as a positive development for men, generally speaking. Um, I, I think that would be really difficult to sort of wrap around the idea that uh, a woman not being able to make that private decision um, and in in her state is going to be positive for men i mean you know we're gonna see a that there's a there's gonna be a lot more children born um you know and it's gonna impact and this is why i definitively say it's negative because if you have money so mm -hmm. I'll, I'll use me yep. I, I hope this is never an it, okay so i have mm -hmm. a daughter and both myself and her mom we are attorneys and if God forbid something like that, any medical decision needed to be made and they needed to go somewhere for this medical treatment, whether it be like you see now, like going to Europe for treatments for cancer and injuries and everything else, or going to flying to another state for a week to have something like this done. Well, mm -hmm. middle class and upper middle class families are going to be, that's mm -hmm. not even going to be a second thought. The ones that are going to be impacted are really the men and women who are already 
in the toughest positions. Let's just call it what that is. Poor people. Yeah. Right. Okay. Poor people, which are, which are um, predominantly, not overwhelmingly, but predominantly people of color. Um, there, that community is going to be impacted by this decision more. Um, those women are going to have less choices to uh, make their family planning decisions than uh, rich white women are anywhere. And so, you know, their, their successful birth rate is going to go up. So the rip, one of the ripple effects that you're going to see of that is going to be that there's going to be more more men who you know because you can't get a pregnancy without a man generally speaking it's 2022 <laughs> all right okay but you know particularly for this demographic that we're talking about right you're going to see that the birth rate's going to go up so that means there's going to be more you know poor fathers out there there's going to be more fathers who are going to have you know sort of draconian onerous child support obligations imposed on them that they can't afford that's going to cause more more fathers to wind up in the prison complex, more children raised without without a, a stable father in the home. You're going to see school shootings are going to go up in, in red states. You're going to see crime is going to expand massively in 15 to 20 years. I mean, you know, you're going to see that effectively the reverse argument of what was argue, what was laid out very carefully in Freakonomics is now going to happen in all of those red states. And I don't think that you can make any sort of a, of a nuanced, historically accurate, sociologically accurate argument that that's going to be good for men at all. You're, you're almost, I think you, you put it very well. It's, it's, uh, you're really pouring gasoline on probably the big candidly in being selfish and talking about the equal and shared parenting movement. Mm -hmm. This decision is essentially pouring gasoline on the fire. That really is the weak point of the equal and shared parenting movement, which something we don't typically talk about, but there is a segment of the population where fathers are not involved. Right. It's a vast majority, but you're essentially pouring gasoline on that issue right um, because and, it's the populations where that occurs that are going to be the most impacted there's going to be more kids raised without fathers which essentially is going to give the other side more ammo in this debate as we move this this movement forward right and and you know let's let's be let's be clear is that um you know a, a huge segment of the population that doesn't have fathers you know of the poor people that we're talking about that doesn't have fathers, that the reason they don't have fathers is because of the, you know, absolute dysfunction inside of the family court system, because the family court system has come along and is just stripping fathers out of families because it's got this, you know, blood sport, you know, winner parent, loser parent, winner parent gets child support and the state gets matching funds from the federal government, loser parent, right, you know, gets to become a Disneyland dad if they're lucky right and if they're and if they get strapped with you know child support payments they can't afford they wind up in prison you know and then their kids wind up you know not having the influence of a father and having all of the horrible things that happen to them because of that or, or what we don't talk about is they may not end up in prison but they're put in such a financial situation that then mom runs back into court and strips them even further of their parental rights because oh they can only afford a studio apartment oh they can't do this they can't do that they can't afford to fly out and visit they can't afford to travel 
Um, so, so there's any, any number of issues that, that come along with that. And that, that makes me think of, and I'll kind of broad strokes. I can't talk about, we can't talk about specific cases, but I mean, it's something where, I mean, in the recent past, it was, we, there was a father who mom just flat out broke him. Um, and it came to a point where we were making progress, but mom made it so difficult. The burden financially was so high that one day he just said, Hey, it's over. I'm, I'm done with this. How, how, how can I just stop this? And that happens, far, that, that happens far more often than, than people would realize because men don't talk about it, but there are men who spend one, three, five, ten. 12, I think 12 years is the right now in, in, in our firm, we're representing someone who their case started in 2010. Um, so 12, 13 years into theirs. And at some point in time, there's a breaking point. And, 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 and Greg Ellis talks about it very well in, in his book, The Respondent, where there became a point in time where he had to make a decision that he was causing more harm than good to his kids because he knew what their mom's reaction was going to be. Yeah. 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 And, and that's, and that's, it's, it's very disturbing. You know, I mean, I call that the dark crossroads. Um, and yeah, it, it, you, you do, you get to that point where you've got to, you know, make this decision. Well, do I, do I exit because fighting to have, you know, any sort of relationship with my kid is um, potentially causing more damage, you know, than than not having a relationship with my kid, um, you know, and that's a very individualized decision that's uh, that you've that a parent has to make, and I I liken that to be the you know equivalent to the gut wrenching decision that a woman has to make when she's deciding whether or not she's going to terminate a pregnancy. I mean, it's at that level that you know, um, a father has has to go through. Um, and it's it, it's disgusting that we are effectively forced that on to people. So I don't think that you can lay out in any way that 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 um, Dobbs is going to be beneficial or positive to men as a group, and certainly not the men that want equal and shared parenting, and certainly not, you know, poor men, and certainly not poor men of color it's 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 a disaster all the way around whether that's red state or blue state i mean there there are certain sociological demographic facts that are absolutely going to happen as a result of dobbs and the case decisions that are going to come after that and that there will be states that that are able to put burdens on abortion that they weren't able to do two weeks ago and and it shouldn't be a political decision it shouldn't be a political conversation it should just be a fact yeah and like i said i i think from a if you remove roe from it the dobbs decision is a sound legal decision in my political opinion but it's an absolute disaster and that's like i said i always i always put that with if you remove roe if roe v wade never would have occurred I would 100% agree that the power should go back to the states. But like I keep saying, because of Roe and because of what was such a solid precedent, that should have not happen. But yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's going to be a disaster. And if you think it's over, it's not. Um, no. Just by nature, you're going to see in the next two to three years, you're going to see more cases come. Some of these very, very red states are going to see 
just how restrictive they can get. Um, the, and you're also going to see you're going to see people who are going to have horrible consequences from this, and people, women are going to die, um, and some of them are going to die in 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 very horrific and completely unnecessary ways. You know, give me a second. I'm going to speak to your to your conservative viewers. You know, so for every person out there who's a conservative who thinks that that the Dobbs decision was a really great idea. Um, imagine for a moment that a woman that you love of childbearing age, it has a pregnancy and she walks through the door of an emergency room and she's bleeding. She's got an entopic pregnancy and she's bleeding. And the emergency room staff is, you know, now all tied up in knots as to whether or not they can perform a li potentially life-saving abortion on this woman or not. And, you know, when there's confusion about things, bad things sometimes happen. So there are going to be, you know, women probably who support Dobbs who are going to die because their state representatives, you know, hadn't figured that issue out and they wind up in a hospital that, you know, when when the doctor is looking at do i perform this procedure on someone that potentially could save their life but i may lose my lose my medical license for that and they say i'm not going to take that risk you know yeah. that that is what that that is going to happen you know so if you're a conservative and you're listening to me talking about this and you're thinking you know dobbs is a good decision i would invite you to get onto the phone and talk to your elected representatives and say you know you damn well better be able to put together some sort of program that makes sense so that women that need to have abortions because their life is going to end if they don't have them have some access to that because you might save your sister's life you know your cousin's life you know or your wife's life it's it's a we live in a Twitter society, 280 character society, and this is a 750 page book type of issue. Um, yeah. I think I think that's the biggest the biggest piece really for both sides, um, because I mean, the, the liberal side of it, um, I've heard so much of they're banning abortion. They're doing this. They're doing that. You're you're candidly. I mean, a lot you, you've actually seen a lot of blue states have come out and strengthened their ability to, or, or actually made it easier to get abortions, made it easier to come in from out of state and get those abortions. And that's what you're going to see. It's then on the other side, we have red states. And, and I think it was Arkansas, the day the Dobbs decision came down, um, Planned Parenthood in Arkansas canceled all of their future abortions, irregardless of the reason for them. So there, there's got it. There, there is a middle ground that is a is a 750 page chapter book, and we want to boil this down to being 280 characters on Twitter, and it just doesn't work. Doesn't work. And one of the you know it's interesting that we're having this conversation between two lawyers, right? Because you know the thing about being a lawyer is sometimes you learn to be able to um, recognize some nuance, right? And, and you know, you can read a you can read a political you can read a, a legal decision, and understand the reasoning and not agree with it personally. Yeah. You know, so 
You know, you wanted to talk about um, New York State Rifle um, Association and how that sort of, you know, interplayed with Dobbs. And um, I read New York State Rifle Association. So, again, back to our biases. So I'm a, I'm a liberal, liberal gun owner. Um, I used to collect World War II handguns. Um, I'm a conservative that doesn't own firearms. Um, so <laughs> so um, I, used, I used to carry concealed. Um, uh, and uh, so, you know, New York State Rifle Association. Now, here's the thing that you're hearing a lot of people out there saying, you know, the Supreme Court just decided that guns have more rights than women, right? Or that, you know, they're, they did this and then they did that. Well, the thing to remember about this is two things. Number one is the, is that, the decision between these two, what these decisions were resting upon, are the legal theories be underneath them were completely different, completely different. And uh, in, in, in short terms, for the viewers, it's the state was restricting the rights. So in 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 New York State, right, the New York State Rifle Association, it was they were restricting rights right. of their citizens, and in the Dobbs decision, the federal government had. Yeah essentially expanded rights. rights away from the states right had expanded rights so right? they're and actually the 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 legal foundation for both is they're going opposite directions one right. was the state had overstepped their bounds the other one was the federal government had ever or the 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 pre the the row decision had overstepped the bounds of the federal government right and you know i mean but the you know the the idea that the that the Federal government, the federal constitution is supposed to be a limited government and a limited constitution, you know, create uh, created by delegated powers. What, what I found was interesting about this. Now, you know, New York State Rifle Association is based upon the idea that the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to self-defense, including the the right to, you know, you know, carry a firearm in public for self-defense. And the the hypocrisy between these two cases is on one hand, what the Supreme Court is saying in Dobbs is they're saying is that this difficult moral ethical issue belongs in state legislatures, and we and you know we should defer to what the state what the state legislatures decide or the federal legislature. I mean, in, in theory, the you know Congress could you know um, pass a constitutional amendment guaranteeing a right to abortion, um, you know, and then but they turn around in New York State they say, yeah, but the 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 New York State legislature had you know made some difficult decisions about these rights and we're going to say no that violates the basic rights that are guaranteed by the federal constitution they over so there's a little bit of hypocrisy between the two of them it's it's nuanced to understand that they're not hypocritical hypocritical but it's almost like you need a legal education to understand that yeah. it's not hypocritical between those two decisions. But to the general public, it sure as hell looks like, you know, hip hypocrisy. I, I, I've been telling people it's it's one of them was a I mean, the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, a constitutionally protected right. And obviously the Constitution doesn't mention abortion at all. So it, you're, you're right, though. It's it's something that's that's nuanced that. Um, I, I think that in, in, in the, the gun decision, there have been similar cases. Um, like there was one now closing in on a decade ago involving the city of Chicago and the city of Chicago had essentially done the same thing. Um, so that there was a lot of precedent. And I think that decision was much less surprising 
Um, obviously, we had the preview memo um, in the in the Dobbs case, but the this, the decision by the Supreme Court in in the gun case, I think, was much much less surprising to anybody in the legal community than the fact that we overturned fifty years of, of settled precedent. Yeah, what what I what I find very disturbing about Dobbs is the, and I forget, I think it was Thomas's concurrence. Yes. Thomas was the one with the concurrence mentioning the other cases. Yeah. Mentioning the other cases. Now that I find very, now that I find very disturbing. He's basically setting his sights and saying that the Supreme court should take a look at these other cases that discuss social issues um, that have been decided over say the last 20 years, that those cases should be up for re-examination. Yeah. And, um, you know, because you've got so many conservative, you know, um, members of our movement, um, I will say this to to them again, and I'll say, you know, you may, you don't have to be a liberal to recognize that um, decisions that that ensure that people have certain rights to engage in certain behaviors in the privacy of their own home are important to a conservative and a liberal, even if you don't engage in those behaviors, um, because you, you don't want to have an environment in which, you know, you're saying that the federal government gets to, gets to tell you what you can and can't do. That's, you know, should be pretty troubling and um, should make anyone who wants to make sure that they have the equal right of access to their children to um, seriously question about whether or not they're going to support that. Well, so I think for, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. I think that one of the cases mentioned, and, and it's kind of ironic, I'm so intimately familiar with it because it came down while I was in law school, was uh, the Ogrefeld decision, gay marriage. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the decisions that was mentioned. And, and I would urge every single, if, if you support equal and shared parenting, you should scream like hell defending that decision because that is a decision that has direct translations to equal and shared parenting. And candidly, I had, I had this conversation with, with an, another attorney here in Southern California who represents men. Um, he happens to be a gay man um, who represents men in family court. And he opened my eyes. He said the biggest, the, the movement that could be the biggest push forward for equal and shared parenting would be the LBGT community because they faced not the same issues, but many of the similar issues. And if a decision like that or a decision around, I mean, it even went as far as one of the decisions mentioned was um, homo, yeah, homosexual activity in the home, which is Lawrence a case, versus Texas. Yeah, I was going to say originate out of the state of Texas, which at the time, Texas had a law, um, I said, probably know way more about this case than probably about any other Supreme Court case because when Overfell came down in 2015, I was in law school. But the foundation of it was Texas had a law that made um, homosexual sexual activity a crime. Mm -hmm. And it ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court and it was found to be unconstitutional. So that was kind of the, the precursor to Overfell getting to the Supreme Court was that that decision had already been made. Lawrence, right. And and Lawrence laid the groundwork for that. And and every conservative, you know, every every straight conservative guy should care about 
about the court potentially opening up the issue about Lawrence versus Texas and, you know, and saying that a, a state can regulate that behavior. Um, because if they can regulate that behavior for gay people, they can regulate that behavior for you. Um, you know, now, you know, Thomas was saying, you know, some of these things should be reexamined. Now, you know, the legal, the legal thought process under, under these different cases, what, what found, why they, why they were decided the way they were is different, you know, for some of them. So for yeah. instance, in Lawrence versus Texas, the Supreme Court found that laws that prohibit same-sex sodomy, um, fail the rational basis test, that there is no legitimate reason for a state to regulate that behavior uh, in the privacy of one's home, right? And um, that's that's why it failed. Um, but, you know, and everyone should care about that, yeah. right? And, and um, you know, and that's different than what they decided in Dobbs, right, where they're, where they're viewing that there's this privacy, there's this privacy right that's not clearly articulated in the Constitution, and that that therefore must, you know, um, also include this other privacy right to talk to your doctor and make these medical decisions and have these procedures, right? So the the legal reasoning underneath deciding some of these decisions is different, but as a political thing, conservatives should should care very much that um, that these potential political decisions could go the other way because it, it can affect them directly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the, the, the scary piece for me is the, the fact that the court has opened up the possibility of revisiting decided law um, make it, it is extremely scary from a stability perspective mm -hmm. and speaking selfishly about our movement. Um, it creates this uneven ground that just being candid, I think that all these decisions, like you said, were it's, it's very technical. You probably have to have some sort of legal education to understand the basis for them, but they all have some tangential impact on equal and shared parenting. Um, really any Supreme court decision, any law um, in regards to equality dating back to, suffrage dating back to the civil war and suffrage and the civil rights movement and everything that happened around gay marriage all of those decisions are tangentially going to impact how courts rule how legislators govern around equal and shared parenting so the more uh, the more that we protect equality in all areas and all aspects of our society the better it's going to be and the smoother it's going to be, whether it's through the courts or whether it's through the legislatures in terms of creating equal and shared parenting. Yeah. Let's make that, let's make that as simple as we possibly can for, for people who might be watching this and particularly conservatives who might be watching this, which is this. Okay. Which is if, if you care about equal and shared parenting and if you, if, particularly if you're a father and you want to have equal access to your kids, then you damn well better care and make sure that your legislatures care about making sure that any of the laws that currently out there that protect equality in any group, even people that you may dislike intensely or your religious viewpoint may say is morally wrong, okay? 
you should care to make sure that your legislatures are protecting their rights and that protecting equality because otherwise it's going to come back and have a direct impact on the ability to make sure that you have equal access to your children. And you want to make it selfish? I'll make it very simply selfish. If you are if you fight for and you are vocal about protecting these individuals' rights whether you agree with them or not, whether you agree there's an issue like there's a big issue in a lot of conservative areas around what we saw in 2020 and 2021 kind of uh, after the George Floyd incident. Like if you're sympathetic and you support these issues, being very selfish, specific to equal and shared parenting, you're going to increase the likelihood of those groups supporting this movement as it continues to gain national traction. Exactly. Exactly. The only way that the only way that we will have true equal parenting in this country is if we build a big tent and that we say, I don't care. I don't care what your political viewpoints are. I don't care, you know, who you love in your in your bedroom. I don't care what your gender is, your color, your religious viewpoint, any of that. The only thing I care about is making sure that you have equal access to your children. That's the only way we're going to actually, you know, achieve the results that we want to achieve is by building that big tent. Or I would go even a step further, not just equal access to your children, equal access to be able to live your life how you want in the privacy of your own home. Right. Right. And to have and to have an equal access to having the same basic rights and protections, irregardless of the color of your skin, your gender your sexual orientation, any of that. The, the more open-minded we are and supportive of other groups, that's going to come back around. And that's, I think that, that being, being conservative myself is that's the biggest weakness right now of a movement that for various reasons has become driven by conservative groups is that we can't be closed-minded about these other issues and then like the state te Texas 2021 the Republican Party of Texas on their party platform had equal and shared parenting. Well, how much more support could you get if you were also supportive of gay marriage, you were also supportive of reforms that I mean as lawyer you know all the studies and science that shows that the darker your skin the worse you get treated by courts. Oh, yeah. um, if you just supported basic science and allowing people to live their lives the way they want to live them um, how far that could go in, in moving things forward in your state and ultimately in the entire country. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, it, you, you know, on, you didn't mention it when we talked about the, the, the two decisions, but, you know, just today they issued another decision too, um, about, and I haven't had a chance to read it about environmental, um, uh, regulations and they're basically taking apart the administrative agencies and and tossing those back to the states and tossing that back to Congress as well. Um, you know, so I think what we're really seeing is we're seeing a court that is really looking at returning, returning power and regulation to um, the individual states and away from the federal government. And, and that's going to, you know, regardless of your political viewpoint, that's going to have, you know, consequences some of which you may say are clearly negative consequences um 
and I'll say I'll say this and that right at the Department of Labor and so OSHA OSHA is something everyone's heard of everyone knows what OSHA is mm-hmm. and OSHA um, each state has the ability to opt into the federal program which is ran out of the Department of Labor or you can run your own programs and essentially um, what occurs with that is the very liberal states all opt out and run their own the very conservative states all opt out and run their own. The, cons- the liberal states are are very, very protect are, are extreme in their protections of employees and their safety. And then the conservative states on the other side are very pro-employer. And then you have this middle ground. So I mean, it, it's it's and it creates a mess a lot of times. Um, even though I'm someone who's conservative and think the federal government in general should stay away. There's just certain overarching things that we need to be uniform. Yeah. I mean, right. Things like, you know, the environmental protection agency. Now maybe you, maybe you think that they, you know, they've gone too far on this thing or that thing or whatever, but you know, (laughs) take a look at the status of the environment in the 1970s. It wasn't, wasn't so hot. Right. And you know, you know, the, the, ability of a of a federal administrative agency to be able to enforce certain things you know for the collective good i I think you'd have a difficult argument saying that the fact that our air quality is better today than it was in you know 1975 or that our water quality is better today um that those are bad things now now maybe states can do that you know individually but who's gonna who's gonna you know get them to um, who's going to get them to meet certain standards on a, on a, on a larger scale? I, I, you know, I, I, it's what the Supreme court has done so far in this term is, is really disturbing in terms of, um, its stability for a host of things. Yeah. I, I, like I said, no matter your position, your concern should be the stability of things because, <laughs> everyone's essentially what it what's uh, the door has been opened and and I think you're going to see the real impact two to three years from now when a lot of the conservative groups that fund cases that they want to get to the Supreme Court have realized now and allowed to wind through the courts these cases that are going to um, challenge well-established issues because um, yeah. it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, in short, you have to you have to have a case that's fully litigated at the district level. You have to have a case that is heard at the appellate court level, and then you have to have a case that's accepted to be heard by the Supreme Court. Oh, and wait, wait, wait! But remember, actually, what you just what you laid out is you actually have two of those. You have to have two of those. You got to have one happening. Yeah, right. So that you've got so that you've got differing opinions. For the Supreme Court to come along and go, oh, well, there's these two differing opinions, so that's a case that's ripe to make a decision that hand down a, a uniform rule. Yeah, it's going to decades. Yeah, well, and, and I think I think the, the, the easiest one, we just had a decision on guns, but one of the organizations that's the most well-funded that does this, um, I, I don't know if they, they don't actually admit it, but it definitely happens, but the National Rifle Association, they're going to go in and file a lawsuit in they're going to go help fund and file a lawsuit in the state of California or the state of New York or against the city of Chicago. 
and then they're going to go fund a similar one in Texas, knowing the decisions they're going to get to get the case to the Supreme Court to get the now they know they, they, they have a strong inkling of number one, this court's going to be willing to overturn potentially decades. I mean, they've already shown 50 years. I mean, what's what's what decisions have been made in the last hundred years? We're only 102 years since the suffrage movement, 1920. Um, so they've already shown 50 years. What's been done in the last century that could be touched by these groups now that the, the Supreme Court's opened the door, specifically these conservative groups, to, hey, Come get us a case and come get a case in front of us, and we'll be able to turn this loss you had seventy five years ago. Right, and and that that is not a good a good place in terms of social stability, um, you know, for our society as a whole. And uh, you know, yeah, it, it's you know, I just as we were talking, I just zipped through uh, New York State Rifle Association, and. Um, I uh, in I don't know it's the twelfth page of the decision. It says that in two thousand and fourteen, Nash applied for an unrestricted license to carry a handgun in public. So that's two thousand and fourteen, right? You know, and the decision is now coming out from the Supreme Court. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, and neither of us practice the appellate level. Neither of us practice, or and I don't think either of us has desires to argue in front of the Supreme Court or or any intention to argue in front of the Supreme Court. But I mean, get a cast a, a case where there's it's just pedal to metal and it moves as rapidly as possible is several years. That's yeah, that's eight years. And this case probably did move as fast as it could. Eight years. Yeah, because you're probably going to have appeals at the district level. You're going to have it could get sent down from the appellate back to the district to be retried. Like these cases bounce around forever. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. They can. Right. And so uh, uh, anyway, I mean, coming back to the issue of equal and shared parenting, I, I I'm I'm really disturbed by what I'm seeing from the Supreme Court. Um, you know on on those issues and i and i certainly hope that the people who are listening to to your broadcast are you know hearing this and they're smart enough and they and they're you know they're thinking is nuanced enough to recognize you know that that they need to make sure that they are supporting um you know rights of equality across the board rights of equality for everybody yeah definitely definitely all right. Hey, well, we're an hour and 10 minutes. Um, so I always promise our guests we won't go over an hour, but uh, you're always so generous <laughs> with your time. Um, I think we, we did end up down some of those uh, rabbit holes that, right. that we promised the people we would end up down. I hope this gives our viewers a better understanding of what these decisions actually mean and how they could impact equal and shared parenting in the coming years, in the coming decade, um, as we've made so much progress with this movement. So, Sean, thank you so much uh, for your time. You're welcome. And um, it's always a pleasure having you on. To the viewers, thank you for watching. Uh, we'll be back with more of a traditional interview next week. Um, so we'll see everybody next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific for State of the Family Courts.